0: Beautiful, sunshiny day up here today. We've had a very rainy summer, but it's gorgeous today. If I was to title today's sermon, I would, I guess, entitle it the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, It's pertinent because in Revelation 2, toward the end time, it mentions in uh, verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there, them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And he gives a little explanation of some of the doctrines who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. I want to go back and examine this in the light of quite a few scriptures to see what his original sin was, how he got into those doctrines, and define closer what the doctrine of Balaam really is. Why is it in the book of Revelation for the end time church? How does it affect you and me? It is tied to the commandment we probably think least of in terms of fear of retribution if we break it. Does money or wealth have anything to do with it? Now we're talking about one of the nearest and dearest things to us, our wallets. Why is money a root of all evil? That which creates, sustains, and feeds evil. Why is it easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? You stop and think about that just a moment. If you hold up a needle, how big is that eye? Now here the kingdom of God is listed as the eye of a needle. You're not going to stretch this eye in order to put the camel through it, are you? Because narrow is the way, like the eye of a needle, to accomplish the kingdom of God. So you can't change the hole, there's one door only, and that's the size it is apparently. So what can you change? Only the camel. And here you're dealing with probably a thousand pound animal. What are you going to have to do to this rich man or this camel that he might enter through this eye of a needle? Perhaps chop? Perhaps blend? Perhaps puree? Or what are you going to have to do? The camel has to be made into a consistency whereby he can go through that small hole. Now Christ used that analogy for a very important purpose. And after considering that, do you want to be wealthy? Is another question. Now these may seem a little disjointed and disconnected, all these questions but I think by the time we get through we will see a very close correlation that they fit very closely together let's go back to Numbers 22 where there is the account of Balaam and pick up the historical significance here because Israel had come out of Egypt and they had whipped the king of the Amorites and destroyed them and here was another people by the the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho it says in chapter 22 And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw what Israel had done to the Amorites, and he was sore afraid of these people. So he sent to a New Ager of that time, one who spoke divination, divination, demonism in other words, to Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor in verse 5, which is by the river of the land of children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there's a people come from Egypt, and they abide against me. And he wanted them cursed, that they might be killed of God, destroyed of God, and that his people might be spared. So in verse 7, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hands. In other words, money. We want to buy a curse was the force of the whole thing here. So they went to Balaam and spoke the words of Balak, and he said to them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak to me, and the princes of Moab, Moab abode with Balaam. Now this is an interesting thing here. That Balaam was a seer, or had contact with Satan and his demons, and yet at the same time he had access and direct contact with Jesus Christ, or Melchizedek in this case. You might begin to project a few of these things forward as we go about how people can be, or were perhaps, in contact with God, and at the same time began to have contact with other beings. And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zephor, king of Moab, that God has sent me this saying, here are these people. And he got direct instruction from God too, didn't he? Which we might get from his word today, but in this case it was direct verbal instruction. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And we'll see as we get down here a little bit, there's a, a little bit of a muddy passage here where it almost seemed God gave Balaam permission. But if you read the clear verses, it's very clear that God did not want his people, Israel, cursed. I think that's clear from many, many scriptures throughout the Bible. He had brought them out there to save them, and they were to become his chosen people, so why would he want them cursed at all? But they kept on working on Balaam, for I will promote you to very great honor, in verse 17, and I will do whatsoever you say to me. I'll do anything to have you curse this people Israel. And Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to, to do less or more. This almost sounds like a man who worships God, doesn't it? He's certainly giving God lip service, isn't he? And yet at the same time he's saying, It ain't the money. It's not the money. He says that more than once in this whole passage. I think he protested too greatly, because as we shall find, it was the money. So he claimed to worship God here. And he said, I can't go beyond the word of God. Uh, Verse 18, Now therefore I pray you, tarry you also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say to me more. Now I'm not sure I got the right message from God. I thought it was very clear what God told him, didn't you? And yet he says, I'm not sure I quite got the message. Let me go back and see if there's any way I can do this. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say to you, that shall you do. Now is he giving Balaam permission here to go with them? That is a possibility. But he certainly did not give him permission to say anything beyond what God had said, did he? Abel wanted permission to go. There are are several uh, explanations by different scholars in the uh, book, alleged Discrepancies of the Bible, page 69 here. One said that God said, If they come to call you, you can go with them. But the next verse says, And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. It doesn't say that they came for him. The implication is here that he rose up early and saddled up and went with them, even though they did not come to him. That's one of the scholar's possible explanations. Another is that God would allow a man to do what he wanted to do. He does not stop us from doing evil and told him he could go, but you'd better not curse Israel. One other thing that I thought of as a possibility here that might have also entered into the play is that God did not necessarily want Balaam with Israel. He'd rather he went with the Moabites. But you'd better not curse my people. Maybe Balaam belonged with the Moabites. Go ahead if you want to. But don't curse my people. And God's anger was kindled because he went. And maybe God said, All right, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. But you will deal with me. It's hard to know exactly what the force is here, but through the rest of the context and in some other scriptures, which we will get to a little later, it becomes very clear what Balaam's motivations were. Anyway, he was very angry with Balaam. And it goes on back and forth. God even tried to prevent Balaam by sending an angel to block the path of his donkey. (laughs) And Balaam... Balaam was so beside himself over this money. This man promised me anything I wanted. He promised me silver and gold. I've got to get this job done some way. So even when his own donkey talked to him, he was so upset, so beside himself that he answered it back. If you were in a normal thinking mode, I don't think you would react that way when the jackass started talking. But Balaam was very, very intent upon his money that he intended to earn, very intent on the goal at hand. Anyway, the angel stopped him three times, and then the angel appeared. Even with direct talk from Jesus Christ, with direct talked from the angel upon which he fell upon his face in front of, he still did not turn from where he was headed. He had preset a goal. He was going to be a rich man. Verse 34, he gives more lip service. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displease you, I will get me back again. I'll go back. The angel said, go ahead ahead with the men. But he again warns him. Only the words that I give you speak. Don't speak against these people. And then it goes back and forth to the high places of Baal and so on. Uh, Back and forth of whether he's going to curse him and and so forth. And you can read this all yourself. Verse 13 of chapter 24. uh, Here again he says, It isn't the money. I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't do what God said not to do. But notice verse 14 is a curious, right here in this context about Balaam and what was going on with Israel. There's a curious verse. And now, behold, I go to my people. Come, therefore, and I will advertise you what this people shall do to your people in the latter days. He brings in the end time right here in the book of Numbers of what is going to occur to Israel. And now we begin to get a clue that there's something important occurring here that is going to appear in the book of Revelation right toward the end. Now, if you go on down through, it sort of drops the story. It talks about Asher and carrying them away captive. And it doesn't say whether Balaam actually went ahead and gave the curse or not in this particular context. But he picks it up in chapter 25, and it says, And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Eternal was kindled against Israel. So, despite what may have occurred there in the next few days or few months, Balaam kept working for that money. And he seduced the people to fornicate, to worship false gods, and caused them to be cursed after all, didn't he? Because Israel wound up cursed as a result of their departing from God. So he taught them these false doctrines. But let's go back to where this started. How did it get going? The breaking of the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Balaam was so desirous of that money that he felt he had to have it no matter what. I'll do anything for money. I'll curse a whole nation of people to get this money. I'll give lip service to God. I will say I won't break God's commands, and I'll turn around and do it so that I might have money. Has anybody ever built a whole body of doctrines, a religion, for money? Looks like it happened right here. That really is the doctrine of Balaam. It comes through pretty clear. Anything goes for the sake of money. I'll worship false gods. I'll fornicate. I will seduce the people to turn from their God in order to have money. In a contest between God and mammon, what won? Despite direct confrontation, direct contact with angels and Jesus Christ himself. This was a pretty powerful drive, wasn't it? We don't think about the sin of coveting too much, perhaps, as we go through life. We hear about lying, stealing, honoring our father and mother. We hear about the Sabbath. We hear about adultery, uh, killing. But you don't hear much about this one. And it's an interesting thing that in the Old Testament, we're talking about a sin of the mind here, a sin of the heart, a sin that basically occurs within your head. Was there a spirit of the law in the Old Testament? You better believe it. The Tenth Commandment had basically to do with that. When lust or covetousness comes around, it creates the breaking of the other nine. And that's what happened with Balaam. He began to think in his mind, hey, this could be profitable, and who cares about Israel? I want the money, and I'll break these other nine. If I have to do it, rather than just pronouncing a curse from Satan that God won't honor, I will seduce these people to fornicate, I will cause them to break all of God's laws and to worship me, and then he will curse them, and I'll get my check. Well money was a root of this evil. When lust is conceived, it brings forth breaking the other nine. So it is a sin of the mind, a sin of the heart, Can you covet with your hand? (laughs) No? Now let's take this back a step further into history and go over to Isaiah 14. Because we'll see that it wasn't just a doctrine of Balaam, but again, way on back and had to do in uh, chapter 14 of Isaiah, verse 12, with another being. Verse 12, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the Mount of the Congregation and the sides of the North. What's the sin here? Covetousness. I want all the wealth, the power, the glory of God. This began to occur in his mind. It wasn't an overt sin of breaking, say, the other nine, but it was something that began to occur in his mind. Why should he have it all? Why should he be rich and I'm, in his mind, poor? Why should God have it all? I'm just as good as he is. That should all be mine. Through a series of convolutions of his mind he came to that point. And how did he go about trying to accomplish that goal once he decided he wanted all the money in the universe I use money in terms of wealth well he began to work and seduce the minds of those under him to depart from the doctrines of God from the love of God the uh, worship of God to the point they too began to think we could have it all we could be we could get rich quick here we could own it all a little scheme to get rich quick a sin of covetousness, of lust for what God had. So he took a third of the angels by seducing them into whoredoms of worshiping another god which was himself. We're going to see a pattern here as we go through the Bible that it wasn't just Balaam, but Balaam got his attitude and his mentality from the god that he worshipped. And it says that he was a diviner, a new age man. So well, Satan was willing to do anything for wealth. Now, let's see how Satan reacts again in Matthew 4 when one is sent who is going to take over the rulership of the world someday and how he goes about seducing him. Chapter 4 of Matthew. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungry. He was really hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. Now, he was preparing for this battle. He knew his enemy. And he knew the power that was involved here. Now, to us, a crust of bread might not represent much wealth. But to a man who hasn't eaten or had anything to drink for 40 days and 40 nights, that's a lot of wealth in those terms. And that is what Satan used on him, was money or wealth, food. Food. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then he took him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, Jump off. And again, Christ quoted scripture. He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And this time he took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now this, he took him to see the things that Satan himself was impressed by. Ruling the world. Having all the power, all the money, all the wealth that was there. That's all he could offer because that was all he was in power over, see. So he offered him everything if he would come and worship him because he knew that if Satan, I mean if Christ failed here, Lucifer would continue to rule. So it was an all or nothing type of gamble. Makes you wonder about gambling too, doesn't it? All these things will I give you if you will fall and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Get you hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left. He couldn't couldn't handle that. He couldn't worship God. And he would not accept Jesus Christ. He wanted it all, he made his play, and it failed. Will he make another play? We'll see some more scriptures later on. So, covetousness, is again, and wealth and power, what he used on Christ. Now there's some scriptures, depending on what attitude we're in, that can be a little bit disquieting to us, because we are in a society that revolves around wealth and power, money and the things that money can buy, the things that we might desire. And yet there are some verses in here which say some very plain and almost startling things about money. And I want to address those right now. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Is that subject to a great deal of misinterpretation? I think it's a very clear scripture, isn't it? It says, Don't lay up treasures for yourself. Maybe we're going to find some personal challenges in this particular chapter and a couple of others we're going to read, which we should give some serious thought to. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Very plain words of Christ. Don't lay up money don't seek wealth on this earth. Those are the very clear words of our Savior. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, or distracted, or double as we'll see, the light that is in you be darkness. How great is that darkness! No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. unrighteously unrighteously obtained or sought after. You just can't do it, he says. Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life. Now this is in the sermon where we always go that Christ magnified the law of the Old Testament and made it more binding, uh, expanded it, and he's giving us some very clear instructions about money here. Take no thought for your life, for no anxious thought is the implication. What you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Isn't there something here more important than food and clothes? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Can we spirit... Spiritualize this away, or does it have something to do with our daily lives? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This issue is going to come down to faith sooner or later. Well, it already has right here, But the issues that we're talking about. Do we or do we not trust God to take care of us? Will we or will we not in the future? If we are not now, will we when the test gets stronger? Who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Where is this headed? therefore take no anxious thought saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed for after all these things do the Gentiles seek that's what you see around you in the world is everyone seeking money everybody in a panic over the stock market in a panic over corporations in a panic about money everywhere major league baseball players lay off for a year because they just can't stand to get by on three or four or five million they've got to have more But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So he gives us our primary focus and goal here. Is seek the kingdom of God. That is our first and foremost goal and purpose. Money is not a goal. Money is not a purpose for us. The kingdom of God is our purpose. Money is only there to be used to buy food and clothes that we might continue after our goal. And yet we seem to make so often in this world today money the goal itself. Maybe our ultimate goal in our cloudy mind is that the kingdom of God is our goal. But where does our energy go? Where does our focus go? Where does our time go? Perhaps we should analyze any endeavor we get into. Any job we take. What is the cost of this job? What is the cost of this profession? Is this going to take 10, 12, 14, 20 hours of my day? Is this going to take six days a week? Is this going to take my time and energy and thought processes and be such a burden on them that I can't seek my number one goal? Paul made tents just for money and food and to show an example to others. But he didn't seem to be really seeking after a lot of money. And we'll read Paul's words in a moment. Hebrews 13. Here's one that might be a little bit hard to swallow. Hebrews 13. Let your conduct in verse 5, be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can we be content with such things as we have? You know, we're at a level far above basic maintenance of life here in the United States today in a nation that has been blessed. And it isn't usually a matter of do we have transportation, do we have shelter, do we have a home. It's a matter of do we get another car, do we have a bigger house, do we have get a new car, Uh, Where do we buy our clothes? At Kmart or at uh, Saks or I don't know all the nice places uh, where you might buy clothes? What is our focus? What is the focus of everyone around us? And how much does it color our own thinking as opposed to Hebrews 13 and verse 5? Let's go to one that's really powerful in 1 Timothy 6. Here are the words of Paul himself. 1 Timothy 6. He's talking about servants and masters, first of all. In verse 3, he says, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've just read some in uh, Matthew about wealth and money and covetousness, and of the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and stripes of words, whereby comes envy, strife, railing, evil surmisings, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. And I think we're seeing some of that today, are we not? Striving over words and all these other things. Supposing that gain is godliness. And I've even heard ministers in the past talk about how, well, this man must be spiritual because look how well he does in business. And uh, look how wealthy he is. So he, he must be close to God in order to have all that money. Just because he's in the church and has capacity to make money, does that make him spiritual? Not on your life it doesn't. It has nothing to do with it. There are lots of really, really wealthy men. And David even talked about how the, the heathen around him seemed to be prospering very well. What was wrong with him? For anyone with an attitude that supposes that gain is important, he says withdraw from that person. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with what you have. Don't be seeking more. Isn't that what he's saying? Is your thinking in line with that? Something for us to think about every time something comes along that we think might be worthwhile for us. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You can't take it with you, is the expression we use commonly. And it's biblical. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? In today's society, we're keeping up with the Joneses and the Hollywood stars is uh, a possibility. What have we come to? What has our society come to? When you can spill a cup of coffee in your lap, and I've used this before, but it just seems to put into a nutshell what is happening in our country. We will do anything for money spill a cup of coffee on our lap and we get a million dollars for it. How ludicrous can you get? Is anyone thinking of a corporation who's there to serve? They're there to make money. Yes. But they're there to give you a service as well. And because you blunderingly spilled something hot in your lap, you, were, you, you get a million dollars? Is something askew here? Now that's an extreme example, isn't it? but bring it back to your life and the things that motivate you and your thoughts but they that will be rich those that have a goal or a desire to be wealthy in other words fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition those are pretty strong words aren't they your goals get so skewed that you cannot serve God and wealth. You just can't do it. For the love of money is a root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And I think we're going to see in another scripture some living examples of that in this very day and age. But you, O man of God, flee these things. We've quoted the scripture that says, Flee fornication, and talked about Joseph many times, haven't we? How many times have you heard this preached? Flee money. Flee wealth. Get away from any thought of becoming wealthy. Now these are hard words. <laughs> I think these indict probably every one of us because we're in a very materialistic society just <laughs> as they were just as they were then. It started with Satan all the way back, and Balaam picked up on it very quickly from Satan and his demons. And he used it on Israel. He used it on Christ, trying to seduce him to worship false gods and to commit spiritual whoredom against God. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Not on the stock market. Lay hold on eternal life. What are your thoughts if you have money in the stock market? I got into it years and years ago in a small way. Was my first thought in the morning to go pray to God? No, my first thought was run out in the yard and get the newspaper and see if I was worth an eighth more or an eighth less. That's the conduct whereby ulcers are made and whereby you do something else before you seek God. It, It changes your focus. I'm not saying standing here that it's necessarily always wrong to be in the stock market, am I? I don't know. You have to judge that yourself. You have to look at these scriptures and apply them to your life and how it affects you. I can only look at me and see if I am coveting, to see if my goals are wrong. You have to look at you. But lay hold on eternal life, not on a desire for wealth, whereunto you are also called and profess a good profession before many witnesses. So the words of Christ and the words of Paul ring pretty clear there to me. Now there is a balance, and there are a lot of other scriptures to consider, but these are very clear scriptures which I think need great, a great deal of consideration in our hearts and minds. We can go back to uh, 2 Thessalonians three ten to 12 I won't go back and read that for sake of time. But it says, A man that doesn't work shouldn't eat. So when it says don't seek money, does it mean that you shouldn't work? No, Paul, as I said, did make tents, more of an example to anyone else rather than taking tithes than anything else. But he also said those who laid around on welfare were wrong as well, that they should work for a living. And I think it's very abundantly clear throughout the book of Proverbs and many other scriptures in the Bible that we are supposed to work. That is not to be our focus, but we are to earn a living. And we could get a little balance from this, perhaps from a he who sought more wealth than anyone else and other things in his life, and that is Solomon. Let's go back and quickly examine a few scriptures, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 24, and see if we can sort of get a balance and a focus here that is correct. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God." all of these machinations we go through to try to become wealthy he says are not the answer but to work to enjoy the work that you do to get a reward from that work and to get your food and your raiment as a result of that work is an honorable thing because work is honorable God works do we as we go through life. Most of us hate our jobs, don't we? I hear people all the time. They hate their job. Maybe they hate their boss. Maybe they hate the size of their paycheck. There are a lot of things that we hate about working today, and a lot of it has to do with the type of society we're in, with the industry and the economic structure and so on, which we don't have time to go into. That's maybe a peace sermon or some other time. But we can apply the principle here. That we need to do the job that we are doing as well as we possibly can. Even if it's a fast food restaurant, we give the best service we possibly can. We keep it as clean as we possibly can. We are friendly and courteous with the people as much as lies within us to do so. Because that is the thing of character. That is building the character of God that we should have. And that's what this is all about, is getting the torque to the ground. Getting it where it belongs. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, while we're back here. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of the life of your vanity, which he has given you under the sun, and uh, all the days of your vanity, for that is the portion in this life and in your labor which you take under the sun. Enjoy your wife and enjoy your work. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily, And he gives you a couple of categories there. Your marriage and your work. There is where we should be finding our satisfaction. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 9, he sheds a little more light on it. Five and verse nine. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver. You've seen people that made it big suddenly, and then their lives go into a shambles. Their marriages fall apart. They become unhappy. Well, they spend all their time worrying about their money and how are they going to keep it. And everyone's trying to take it away from them. And the money almost becomes a curse. Does it not? I've seen it happen over and over. Or he that loves abundance with increase. This is vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? You can sit and stack your coins all you want, count your dollar bills. But what good do they do you? You can only eat so much. You can only wear so much. Other than that, all you can do is count your money and see if it's diminished or increased today. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. He doesn't have all that on his conscience, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. He's always worried. He's a target to every shyster lawyer in the world, or even a good lawyer if there is one. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for their owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begets a son and there is nothing in his hand. And he says, As you came forth from your mother's womb, naked shall you return as you you came. He shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. This is a sore evil. Why are we trying to pile it up? I think of a couple of people I know, not in the church, who have made millions and millions of dollars. Relatives of mine. They won't buy lunch for their kids. You know, and they're almost, they're at the age of death in their 70s, 80s, in one case. He is so tight he squeaks when he walks. And his wallet, it just—it somehow it must have a strong spring in it. It just will not open. All those millions, do they make him happy? Not in your life. I know you're an exception. <laughs> if I had money, then I would do right with it. You're throwing that in the face of a lot of scriptures, brethren, if you, if you adopt that attitude. Proverbs is full of instruction about money. It's in full of instruction about laziness and how the roof falls in if you lay on the couch. So money is an important thing because it measures our labor. We have to use it for the right things, but not to inordinately seek it. Now let's go to Second Peter 2 back to the New Testament. We're going to see a little more clearly here some things about Balaam as we go through this. Second Peter 2 is a chapter which I read oh, ten years ago or more and looked upon it as a prophecy ten years ago. Today I look upon it as fulfilled history, a lesson in history. It isn't fully fulfilled yet, but it's happened enough and we're in it enough that you can almost look upon it as history. 2 Peter 2. You're going to see some familiar things here. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. That was the mode that Balaam was in. He couldn't just, just absolutely contradict the word of God Or the words of Jesus Christ, to put it that way. But he found a devious way to cause the people to be seduced and to fall from the knowledge of God and the true worship of God and thereby be cursed. And his motivation all along was money. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. Remember what he said about the latter times there in Numbers 23 or 4? By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. These people are going to become pernicious in the end time. And the way of truth will be evil spoken of because of it. And through, or in, is a better translation, in covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Their goal is really money. Covetousness. And they will give feigned words, not true words, not the truth of God, which we've all been taught, but they will give you feigned words. Isn't that what Balaam had to do? Didn't he have to go to these people and say, you're worshiping the wrong God. Worship me, and you will be blessed. You don't have to do what God said. You don't have to keep the commandments. What is the the Tenth Commandment? Is it just a thing like murder that you perpetrate? No. It's something that happens in the mind that causes you to break the other nine. The covetousness, the lust, for things you shouldn't have. Whose judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. Coming close to the end when this happens. For if God spared not the angels that sinned but cast, but cast them down to Tartarou and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved to judgment he spared not the old world. Now look here are some things that God did when he saw this begin to happen. Sodom and Gomorrah, he just wiped out. God does not like this attitude. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. Now here was Lot living right in the middle of of sin. And he vexed his righteous soul about what he saw going on around him. He vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Remember in Isaiah where it says those that sigh and cry against the abominations that they see around them? How much do we embrace the things we see around us? Money is behind it all, but he's seducing us away from God to commit all kinds of fornications, idolatry, witchcraft, new age, everything around us. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and, and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the lust after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. Lust, covetousness who walk in those ways. And despise government. Do we see that happening in the Church of God today? You know, we trusted the government. We trusted the administration of Herbert W. Armstrong. And then when that was gone and we saw, which I have to look at in this light, feigned words, seducing me away from the truths of God that I understand, Something happened in a lot of people's minds, didn't it? Now they don't want any government. Now they don't trust any government. And they despise government. It's a result of having been pulled away. Now had those who understood the truth of God, who had been in contact with God, such as Balaam, who had been in contact with God, and began to listen to Satan, had they not destroyed that trust That we had built in God working through men, we would still be able to trust the government of God through man. But now we have a problem, don't we? And we see it throughout the churches of God today. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Well, I think that's a natural reaction in a way, but be very, very careful with it, because God has set those to teach. And He says, be careful. Give them a teeth and tail check to make sure they're not wolves in sheep's clothing. But you still are supposed to listen, aren't you? Don't despise governments. Understand what is going on. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, leaning to their own understanding. Well, this is the way I see it. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, he's giving us a lot of instruction here about how to handle what is happening to us right now in the latter days. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, certainly than us, by comparison, bring not railing accusation against them before the eternal. They're very careful. These are the people. These are the children. These are the progeny of God, these human beings. I know I, I was thinking about a politician or someone the other day. I forget now what the thought was going through my mind. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute. That's a child of God. I better be careful what I say. God may deal with that person someday. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear that He's going to deal with all of them someday. So, no matter how despicable, I must be careful in my approach, what goes through my mind. But these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Isn't that what we're built on today? Let's just enjoy self-gratification. Whatever feels good, do it. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, there you have the lust, the covetousness, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. goes right back to the attitudes of Satan and of Balaam. And he brings it into it right here. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So Peter boils down Balaam's attitude right here. Yes, the doctrines... As a result of Balaam's attitude, listed in Second and in Revelation two fourteen, are there, but his attitude was one of gain of wealth, the wages of unrighteousness. But was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. He went clear over the wall, didn't he? Way out in left field. He became so committed to the money. That he was willing to turn Israel into a curse. Kind of reminds you a little bit of Judas, who was under the spell of Satan. Who sold the Savior of the world for 30 pieces of silver. For money. How important is money to us? How important is our wealth, our car, our house to us? Are we ready and willing to walk away from them, brethren? Maybe it's time for a gut check, because we are right here at the end. There might be a time soon where we have to flee to a place of safety. How strong are your ties with this material world? I think that's something we all have to think about. (laughs) These are wells without water, empty, clouds that are carried with a tempest. It's all vanity, Solomon said, didn't he? It's all emptiness. It's all vanity. The things we want. Anyone who seeks the wages of unrighteousness or allows himself to be seduced away from God and worship other gods because of the desire for wealth or money. A job that requires us to work 10, 12, 14 hours a day on a regular basis could seduces us away from God, couldn't it? Because we don't have time to pray. We don't have time to study. We don't have time for intimacy with God or with our wife or our husband. We are seduced away. And then we are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Come to a gimme religion, don't you? Without, without foot washing, it's all you have. Give me salvation. But I'm not willing to serve anyone else. I want my money. I want my wealth. And you can can get in between anything else and me, but don't get between me and my wallet. When preachers start talking about giving, people start squirming. Because in too many cases, money is one of our gods. And it was at the basis of Satan's self-worship, the power and the wealth. And all these other people we've talked about. Well, they promised them liberty. Financial independence, that liberty all the things that money can bring, they themselves are the servants of corruption for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought in bondage. For if he escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, he returns to his vomit. And I'll tell you right now that this is a prophecy and that there are people in the world today living, walking human beings who are seducing people away from God and money and covetousness is their ultimate goal. I'm not naming names. I am not naming organizations. But I am reading a scripture about the latter days which was mentioned in Numbers and is mentioned right here. And Peter said it would happen. And believe me, believe the scripture, it is happening. There are those who are doing this very thing today. And they are in the church of God. We won't go into a witch hunt here, but these conditions exist. Now let's go to Jude 11 and see this a little clearer, because he brings Balaam up again. One of these scriptures that again was a prophecy, and we see it happening right in front of us now, and we see some of it already having occurred. Earnestly contend, verse 3, for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. What was once delivered to us? I think those in this organization and in the hearing of my voice today understand that we were delivered the truth of God. God revealed it to Mr. Armstrong. The whole basic truths of God were revealed there. That was what was delivered to us. And when you start being pulled away from that... Katie barred the door. For there are certain men crept in unaware. They, they got in, somehow. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lawlessness. Boy. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. See, turning to idol worship. Same as the sin of Balaam, right there. I will therefore put you in remembrance So you once knew this. Then he goes on and describes how they came out of Egypt and what happened there and how Balaam tried to destroy them. Sodom and Gomorrah, just as Peter mentioned it. These filthy dreamers, verse 8, defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. So it nails down right there what the attitude of Balaam was. The doctrine of Balaam basically was me and wealth, me and power. And these other things naturally follow that because if you make those things your God, as Christ said, you can't worship God and money. You just can't do it. And I don't think you can pull a camel through a needle without a great deal of difficulty. Do you want to be a wealthy man? (laughs) Think about that. Do you really want to be wealthy? These are spots in your feasts of love. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds without water. Same type of language that Peter was using. This money is is a god. It is idolatry. We better think carefully about it. Now, God doesn't say you can't use it at all. I want to go very quickly now to the book of Micah because it is one of the prophecies of this end time as well. And see if this theme doesn't carry through in the end time. Micah, I don't have time to to go through the whole book, but I want to pick up a few things here. The word of the Eternal came to Micah, the Morris in the days of Jotham and so on, he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, and what would be happening in the end times to these peoples. Chapter 2, verse 12, Woe to them that devise or evil upon their beds! When the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the power of their hands. And they covet fields and take them by violence. Isn't that what's happening in our nation today? We covet anything anyone has. We'll take it any way we can get it, even down to killing someone for his tennis shoes. Happens all the time. We'll do anything for it. You'll see this. That isn't the only theme in the book of Micah, but I wanted to pick out a few verses to show that that's the way conditions would be in Israel. And this theme keeps recurring over and over. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage, everything about you. Your inheritance, your house, they'll take it from you any way they can. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 9. The women of my people, have you cast out from their pleasant houses? From their children, have you taken away my glory forever? They'll kick you out of your house. They'll foreclose on your mortgage. They'll They'll get it any way they can. They'll slip on your porch and try to take your house away from you. That's what we've come to in this society today. Is this greed? Is this worship of God or worship of money in this so-called Christian nation we live in? Chapter 3, verse 2. Who hate the good and love the evil. Who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones. They'll take your food away and let you starve to death who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. And they break their bones and chop them in pieces, as for the pot and his flesh within the cauldron. You ain't seen nothing yet when it comes to greed. What about when these people get hungry? This is cannibalism. It's going to happen right here. Not in this house, I hope. I mean in this nation. And maybe there are some who will eventually hear this tape who already have cannibalism in their country. We're not talking about something that shall come, but that which already exists on this earth. Chapter 3, verse 11, The heads thereof judge for reward. Do the judges and lawyers judge for reward? Or do they judge righteous judgment? There is no justice in the land. And the priests thereof teach for hire. Hirelings, who will preach anything to keep their paycheck coming. Do you see that anywhere today? And the prophets thereof, divine for money. Same as Balaam. Yet will they lean upon the Lord. They'll lean on his name. They'll lean on his authority. They'll say they are of God. But they're teaching the doctrines of Balaam. And say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Is Christ on his throne? Is Jesus Jesus there? Does he know what's going on? Will he correct whatever might be wrong here? We can do no wrong. He'll see us through. None evil can come upon us. Is Micah alive and well today? Chapter 6, verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Go back and examine what happened to Balaam. What happened to Israel as a result of the covetousness of Balaam. Wherewith shall I come before the Eternal and bow myself before the High God? Shall I come before Him with a burnt offering, with calves of a year old? Will the Eternal be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? That's a lot of oil. Is God impressed with wealth? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the eternal require of you but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? There's our goal. There's our purpose. All the wealth that we could throw before God as an offering means absolutely nothing to him. He is not pleased with the blood of bull and goats. Eternal's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name. Hear you, the rod who has appointed it. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable? They'll only pay what they absolutely have to to get you to work, won't they? They'll raise the prices to exactly what the market will allow. They'll keep you in poverty if they possibly can. They'll drive you further into it if they can, just to get everything you've got. Is it the goal of the government to give you a vine and a fig tree today? Is it the goal of the corporations to provide something better for you? No, they want to pay you as little as possible and raise their prices as high as they possibly can. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? Chapter 7, verse 5. Trust you not in a friend. Put you not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. We're headed into some scary times. For the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Have you read that somewhere in Matthew as the words of Jesus Christ? What happened in the end time? Are there those in your own family who when they're faced with whether or not they will eat, might not for 30 shekels of silver or a piece of bread betray you? Who knows what people will do when they're really hungry? We've already read about flaying the bones and breaking them up and eating the marrow, haven't we? Human beings are capable of anything to try to survive. And words of Christ also echo, O you of little faith, can you trust me? Do you have to lay up for yourselves barns full of grain? Do you have to lay up a house full? Now we balance that against go to the ant you sluggard and lay up for the winter. Sure, we're supposed to have a certain store for emergencies or for extra company or for whatever reason. But we're not supposed to bury guns and food in all the caves of the earth so that we might be protected. Won't happen anyway. Where is our faith? This thing all boils down to faith, doesn't it? Are we willing to trust God or is money our God? Is security our God? I guarantee you, he who seeks to save his life is going to lose it. And he who is willing to lose it and trust God and work for his raiment and his clothes and keep his goal that of serving and developing his relationship with God that's the one that's going to come out ahead because he says in verse seven therefore I will look to the eternal I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me that's the bottom line isn't it right there here in the Old Testament Now let's go back to the book of Revelation here and wrap this up. Let's see, right at the end time, we had prophecies of it from Jude, we had prophecies from Peter, things which we see happening right among us today. Revelation 2, verse 14, here he brings it down, as I mentioned at the beginning. I have a few things against you, verse 14 of chapter 2, that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And it's talking to the end time churches, isn't it, I believe? I don't think that it's just talking to Philadelphia and Laodicea. I think it's talking to all of us, and the bottom line is that we all overcome. But let's see what this is doing. Let's go back to Revelation 18 and see right at the very end what this is all about. Was from Satan's day, was in Balaam's day, was in Christ's day, was in Peter's and Jude's day, and Paul's day. <coughs> what is it today? Revelation 18. Revelation 18. Beginning in verse 2, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, in a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So right at the end, we go right back to Satan's attitudes. Right back to what Satan was. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This reminds you of Balaam, doesn't it? And how he seduced them? for money, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. This whole thing at the end is going to have a lot to do with mercanty, merchantry, with money, with commerce, with ruling the world via money. Who is behind this? He brings Satan into it right here. Satan who manipulates men, who creates greed and covetousness and lust in the eyes of men to have money and power. It doesn't matter whether it's the new world order or whether it's someone else behind the scenes that comes on the scene. We know the source and we know the attitude. We've seen that very clearly throughout this sermon. And we want to be very, very careful that we don't have this rubbing off on us And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. And it's having to do, basically, with money. Read the whole chapter here. How much she has glorified herself, and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow, uh, verse 7, give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no more a widow, and shall see no sorrow. Her plague shall come in one day death, mourning, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and live deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city! Oh, New York has fallen, Wall Street is gone. Oh, how horrible! My money went with it. The whole attitude. The merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. This is a financial thing we're talking about at the end. For no man buys their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and so on and so forth and cinnamon odors and ointments The fruits that your soul lusted after are departed from you, and all the things which were dainty and goodly are departed from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand far off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. This is going to die hard. Now what about you and me? What is the mark of the beast? What does it have to do with? Money. Are you willing to forsake the Sabbath of God and keep Sunday so that you can eat? So that you can have a job and eat? It is time now to analyze our thoughts, our activities, where we are putting our emphasis in life. Is it on wealth and money and the materiality of the world we see around us? Or is our real focus on the kingdom of God? Because if we have it a little bit off, and it comes down to the time what will we do I see people already who so willingly accept working on the Sabbath of God so they can have a job or make more money it's already happening to God's own people and there are people who are teaching them to do it that was the sin of Balaam to covet money and to teach Israel to depart from God saying that they would be blessed. That they would have a closer walk with God. That God would bless them. What an abominable lie to put before God's people. Are we swallowing that partially? Perhaps we should examine ourselves and see. And you and you only can do it, because we come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different capacities, different abilities, different inheritances. But there's some pretty leveling scriptures here about what our goals and purposes should be. Verse 19, they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city and were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness for in one hour is she made desolate Rejoice over her you heaven and you holy apostles and prophets Don't be part of her Don't be so sucked in by what Hollywood is promoting that you lose your focus Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon that financial institution seduced you from God be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. Is money still a goal, brethren? Notice chapter 19 now, a little bit change of tone here. Verse 7, 19, 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. The stated goal of this church is to prepare the bride. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That's the raiment for us. Seek God with all our hearts. Don't seek money. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, said Jesus Christ very clearly. Don't seek wealth, for the Gentiles seek that. Seek the clean linens of righteousness. I want to quote one more scripture in closing because I think it's very significant. Numbers 13, verse 22. Balaam, the son of Beor, did the children slay with the sword. Our work is cut out for us. Are we going to allow this to live in our lives, and our attitudes, our daily lives? Or will we take the sword of the Spirit of God and slay this attitude? End of transmission. Is that our attitude? Do we look upon the things that the world is trying to seduce us with, whether it be Hollywood or whether it be corporate money or gambling, lotteries, sweepstakes, whereby people gamble their grocery money on winning the lottery and becoming wealthy? And their kids may go hungry because they have to buy lottery tickets.